Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's December the 11th, 2023. 2023 is almost at an end. Time waits for nobody, it is said, although maybe that isn't true. We all want to escape time. We all want to last forever. None of us really want to age. And maybe we have a fix for that. How Not to Age is the title of an intriguing new book from one of America's leading scientific medical writers, Michael Greger. Many of you will be familiar with uh, his previous books, uh, How Not to Die, How Not to Diet, How uh, and a book about uh, the, the coronavirus. Um, so I'm thrilled that uh, Michael is joining us from rural Virginia. Michael, I'm sure one way not to age is to live in rural Virginia. Is that right? It is very nice. Unfortunately, when the speaking tour pops back up, uh, I'm kind of in the boonies here a couple hours from Dulles. So I'm actually going to have to move into D.C. and uh, get a short-term lease to to, to get out there. But yeah, during a pandemic, it's perfect. Little Walden Pond writer retreat. But now that the world's opening back up, I'm going to have to go back to civilization. In all seriousness, though, in terms of aging, is there a difference between rural and, um, and urban people, lifestyles? Uh, I'm guessing in America, in particular, uh, people who live in rural areas tend to be poorer. So I'm guessing they may age faster, but you tell me. That's a good question. We do know that there are blue zones in both of these areas of exceptional longevity around the world in both rural settings and urban settings. In fact, the only remaining blue zone, um, Loma Linda, California, is a, uh, is, a, is a city setting, whereas the others really were only able to maintain their lifestyles because they're relatively isolated. They're islands or off on a peninsula where they just didn't have access to a lot of things that are shortening our lives, like processed foods and cigarettes. Michael, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, from the edge of Silicon Valley, of course, a valley of guys like Peter Thiel, who seem to believe or hoping to believe that we can live forever. Does your book touch, your, your new book, How Not to Age, does it deal with some of the high-tech Silicon Valley fixes? Or is it mostly focused on nutrition? I do um, uh, have a, a, a small section where I talk about whether you are trying to live long enough to live forever or just trying to uh, live as long as healthy as you can. Um, it's really the kind of same strategies, but whether or not you know, anti-aging biotech is going to give us that trillion-dollar pill is uh, yet to be... Uh, uh, we, I'm skeptical, but, uh, but, uh, you know, either way, uh, we need to make it, uh, past the finish line there. Michael, it's a, it's, it's a perennial theme, literature, philosophy, culture, um, how not to age. Are you really promising that people can escape aging or are you offering in particular a, a nutritional strategy to age slower? Right. Just as my last book, How Not to Die, was not about living forever. It was not how to not die, but how not to die. is in prematurely in pain after a long chronic disabling illness. So How Not to Age is a similar premise. The book is not about 
immortality, but rather how to age with grace and vitality rather than you know, suffering from the uh, ravages of infirmity and disease. Well, I, you don't want to give everything away, Michael, because you've always been a best-selling writer and uh, How Not to Age, I'm sure, is going to do as well as your previous books. But I am expecting a few little... Um, a few little glimpses about how not to age. Where should we begin here? What do you think the most important scientific approach in terms of uh, getting healthier as we get older? What is your, your core advice in this book? Well, based on studies of identical twins, only about 25% of the difference in lifespan between people appears to be due to genetics. So then the question becomes, what can we do over the majority of which we may have some control? So one way of looking at that is to look to these blue zones where they have the highest rate of centenarians, those living um, to be 100 years old. Um, and although there certainly are, um, they share certain lifestyle characteristics, um, the, uh, what appears to be the greatest contributor to their uh, longevity is their diet. More than 150 dietary surveys have been done in these areas historically. And they oh, what they share in common is that they centered their diets around fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, legumes, beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, nuts and seeds, herbs and spices, basically real food that grows out of the ground. These are our healthiest choices while minimizing processed foods, meat, dairy, sugar, eggs, and salt. I've heard this before many times, Michael. What are you saying in your book that, that we don't know? I mean, everybody knows this, and then everyone goes and opens a box of chocolates or goes to a Chinese restaurant and orders sweet and sour pork. What, what are you saying that we don't know? Oh, well, look, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, it's your body, your choice, right? If you want to smoke cigarettes, go bungee jumping, you know, not wear your seatbelt. It's up to each of us to make our own decisions as to what to eat and how to live. And so we should make these choices consciously, educating ourselves about the predictable consequences of our actions. And so that's what I see my role. Look, as long as people are doing, you know, the, the, the sweet and sour pork of their, you know, fully informed, then, <laughs> uh, then my work is done. The problem is people are being misinformed. Uh, you know, writing this new book really reminded me a little about about uh, writing my last book on weight loss, both the diet and anti-aging. So that was how not to diet. How not to diet. Both of those industries are these billion-dollar behemoths, right, with so much money in the mix, the temptation to promote products uh, purporting all sorts of preposterous claims is apparently irresistible, right? Even an educated layperson seeking basic uh, you know, practical advice in either area, living lighter or longer, is faced with an inscrutable barrage of pills and potions. I mean, even as a physician with the luxury of wading neck deep into the peer-reviewed medical literature, it's been a challenge to, you know, separate out the, you know, naked truth from the emperor's clothing. Uh, but, you know, that is what I feel makes the endeavor that much more important. Like if it took me three years to sift through all the science, I'm afraid the you know, casual observer would have little hope in separating fact from force. Michael, in your research and in your conversations, do you think the majority of people actually know 
that it's healthier to eat fruits and vegetables and whole grains um, and that they're resisting food which maybe may have more sugar, more salt designed for an unhealthier lifestyle or are they still unaware of it? In other words, is this a struggle with our inner discipline or is it a scientific educational issue? Well, you know, it's it's not a fair fight, right? So, for example, obesity in this country, it's not a moral failing, right? The battle of the bulge is a battle against biology. We're living in a toxic food environment, drowning in a sea of excess calories, being bombarded by ads for fast food and processed food. So, you know, becoming overweight is a normal, natural reaction to this abnormal, unnatural ubiquity of sugary, fatty foods concentrated in calories. And so it depends on how exposed we are to these kind of messages. But if you go on the internet, it's just an absolute cesspool of misinformation. And it's because, unfortunately, the incentives are misaligned. The most profitable foods tend to be the least healthy foods. So fruits and vegetables are the worst thing to sell, right? They're perishable. They rot on the shelves. What you want is a snack cake that lasts on the shelf for a few weeks, right? That's how, uh, you know, that's how you make more, or even better, sell, you know, brown sugar water in a bottle. It's, you know, almost all profit. So it's not like the, you know, CEO of, of Coca-Cola sitting there, you know, uh, uh, thinking, how can I contribute to the childhood obesity epidemic? They're thinking, how do I satisfy the next quarterly earnings for my shareholders? And if they didn't sell brown sugar water, they'd get booted out and replaced by someone who would. So the system is just not set up um, to foster the health and well-being of our citizens. And these, we need to recognize that these corporations bombarding us with messages to muddy the waters in hopes we'll throw up our hands and eat whatever put crap that's put in front of us, they do not have the best interests of our families at heart. We are speaking with Michael Greger, one of America's most popular influential physician writers, has a new book out, How Not to Age. Michael, we've done a lot of shows on the, the big food industry, on big ag, on industrial ag, on regenerative agriculture. To what extent are you arguing in How Not to Age, or at least implicitly arguing in How Not to Age, that we need structural reform. It's not enough just to eat the right things. We need a, a shift in farming policy, in, 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 uh, in how we buy our food, in, in, in farm-to-table food and product and markets. Uh, or do you think that we can figure out, or most of us can figure out, how not to age within the current sort of industrial food structure? It's possible, but the healthy choice is certainly not the default choice, and we really have to work on it. And so I talk a lot about the structural changes that are necessary, but then basically say, until that happens, here's what we can do to protect ourselves, our families, our communities. I, um, I draw a parallel between smoking in the 1950s, basically mm. smoking, uh, you know, in the 1950s, the per capita cigarette consumption, four thousand cigarettes a year, meaning the average person walking around smoked half a pack a day. The media was telling people to smoke. The American Medical Association was telling people that smoking on balance is beneficial in moderation. 
Um, and so we uh, smoking basically went up, up, up in this country until 1964 and then basically fallen every single year since and down crashing down came lung cancer rates and one of the greatest public health victories of all time. And the question is, wait a second, what happened in 1964? It was the publication of the first Surgeon General's report against smoking, citing science that went back to the 1930s. We already had a mountain mm -hmm. of evidence implicating cigarette smoke and lung cancer. They cited 7,000 studies. You'd think after the first 6,000 studies, it could give people a little heads up or something. But no, it was a very powerful industry they were fighting about. And it took that overwhelming weight of evidence before the powers that be just officially recognized it. And so, and that's all that changed. There wasn't any new study, no science. And so we are in that, so we're in the 1950s with food where it has yet to, uh, you know, the, 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 you know the, there's nowhere on the CDC website does it say that, you know, processed meat, bacon, ham, hot dogs, lunch meat, sausage, et cetera, has been categorized as a category one carcinogen, right? We know it causes colorectal cancer, number two cancer killer after tobacco. Um, yet, you know, why aren't they even just talking about it? And so it's like, well, okay, we need to um, put pressure. And there is some wonderful work being done. I was just um, speaking in New York City last week where all 11 uh, public hospitals are offering as their default option, these whole food plant-based meals. Most of the patients are sticking with the default. So that's millions of meals every year. Can you imagine healthy food in a hospital? Like what a concept. Similarly, there used to be smoking vending machines in the hospitals. Yet, uh, hospitals were actually one of the first um, institutions to remove the vending machines to make smoke-free um, uh, workplaces. And so similarly, medicine, I'm, I'm encouraging to take a lead with food as well, since the number one killer in these United States is the American diet. According to the Global Burden of Disease Study, the largest systemic analysis of risk factors for death and disability in history, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The number one cause of death is diet bumping tobacco smoking to number two. Cigarettes now only kill about a half million Americans every year, whereas our diet kills many more. So if the number one cause of death and disability is diet, um, then we really need to rearrange our priorities in this country. It's astonishing as uh, in the way in which you compare uh, our eating habits with our, or what were our smoking habits, and you suggest that uh, the number one killer in America now is the American diet, as opposed to smoking. Um, going back to the 50s and 60s, it also reminds me of the campaign Ralph Nader waged against the American automotive industry. Um, do we need equivalence of Nader to fight big food in America? I'm not sure if there was an equivalent of Nader when it came to smoking. Unsafe at any feed. That's the book. We yeah, did. that's the book, Michael. That can be the next book. But yeah, no, no. Well, there, there, we, we, there, there are uh, wonderful consumer organizations um, like Consumer Federation, etc., that are doing this work. Um, but it's an uphill battle because certainly the money. So uh, I'm uh, you know, moving to D.C. later this month. And within the Beltway, um, we have very powerful industries. So, for example, you know, look to you know, something like the antibiotic resistance problem. I mean, every single medical 
major medical organization on planet Earth has come out and say we need to stop feeding, you know, antibiotics in mass just to fatten livestock quicker. And other countries have done something about it. But here in the U.S., there's been no I mean, there's been, you know, on one side, you have all of medicine, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, Infectious Disease Society, everything on, up and down. On the other side, you have both Big Ag and Big Pharma that sells those drugs. And so all the dead children in the world and all the medical science is, you know, falls on deaf ears when we have two of the most powerful lobbies um, uh, putting a stranglehold on our politics. And so, again, eventually you know things move but we but we cannot wait because what we do three times a day is a life and death you, you say eventually it will change but with smoking people aren't people aren't smoking alternative products they've just given up or people are slowly giving up smoking with food you still need to eat isn't that the problem yeah so less than 15% of americans now smoke um, but yeah, that's the that's the argument. Look, you know, uh, you know, we we uh, no one has to smoke. Everyone has to eat. But I, I like to say, look, everybody has to breathe. But that doesn't mean you have to breathe smoke. So yeah, everyone has to eat. But that doesn't mean you need to eat crap. Does that go back? Should we go back to the beginning of the 20th century when a lot of the regulatory power of the state focused on making sure that people didn't eat unhealthy early industrial foods. It seems well, as if the state has stepped back now and allows us mostly to eat whatever we want. Well, I mean, a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the, the government influence back then was, you know, talking about how, you know, sugar is the cheapest form of calories. Back then there was a lot of, you know, food insecurity and they were talking about, we need to get more sugar into people because the cheapest form of the, you know, just to keep people working in the factories. And so there wasn't necessarily this, this focus on nutrition only now um, really since the seventies, are we dealing with really kind of this excess, you know, we no longer really are suffering um, from these nutrient deficiency diseases like pellagra and beriberi and scurvy, quashiorcor. What we're dying from are diseases of nutrient excess, particularly too much sodium, too much salt, contributing to heart disease and strokes and kidney disease, too much saturated fat, too trans fat, too much ca uh, concentrated calories in general, too much sugar. Um, and so uh, the, 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 the dietetics kind of community really hasn't caught up. I mean, their, their whole field is really about making sure you're getting enough of everything. And so um, it's really the counterbalance now is kind of the lifestyle medicine movement we're just saying, okay, let's now it's a matter of what can we do to prevent, arrest, and reverse some of these chronic diseases that are tied to lifestyle choices like diet. We're speaking with Michael Greger, uh, one of America's leading uh, physician writers, has a new book out, very important book, How Not to Age, the Scientific Approach to Getting Healthier as You Get Older. Fortunately, we are not sponsored by McDonald's or Burger King. That would be pretty embarrassing. We're actually sponsored by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, a kind of nutrition for the soul, an excellent nice. publication, uh, which is actually published out of Washington, D.C., close to where Michael Greger is, and all our guests get a complimentary uh, annual subscription. Going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll come back to Michael to talk more about how not to age, how to avoid dying prematurely. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. 
Liberty's it's not just a journal of ideas, it's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberty's is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties uh, at libertiesjournal.com. I guarantee substance for the soul might, might not make you live forever, might not slow the aging mentally, but uh, uh, sorry, physically, but it certainly will mentally. What about, uh, Michael, the, the mental side of this when it comes to how not to age? Is bad eating, is eating too many, too much fast food, does that result also in mental aging? Do people who have healthier diets age slower when it comes to thinking? It's actually the largest chapter in the book, Preserving Your Mind, because it's one of the most dreaded uh, diseases, a major public health challenge. Alzheimer's disease now one of our leading causes of death. Actually, the second leading cause of death in higher income countries after heart disease. Thankfully, though Alzheimer's is incurable, it is preventable. L modifiable lifestyle factors outweigh the genetic component. Alzheimer's is related to the atherosclerotic plaque buildup in the brain. So the same changes that can help with cardiovascular health uh, can also help with cognitive health. In other words, what's good for the heart is also good for the head. So you can take uh, people with cognitive decline and uh, randomize them to uh, normalize blood pressures, normalize cholesterol, other heart disease risk factors, and, and slow the progression of the disease. Aerobic exercise can improve brain function in both normal and cognitively impaired individuals. Um, we think by boosting a, a hormone called brain-derived uh, neurotrophic factor, um, uh, and uh, which is also boosted by meditation, caloric restriction, reducing saturated fat intake, um, and reducing um, uh, something called advanced glycation end products, which are found in dry cooked meat. Um, and uh, certain pollutants, industrial pollutants like DDT in the diet. Um, uh, the, the best dementia-deterring diet is likely low in added sugars, salt, saturated fat, animal products, processed foods, high in whole plant foods, particularly greens and berries, um, helping to explain why vegetarians, for example, three times uh, less likely to become demented in older age. That's astonishing. So a vegetarian is three times less likely to become demented to get one of these horrible diseases, nightmare diseases, than, than, than people who eat meat? Yes, that was the uh, Seventh-day Adventist study um, performed in California. Is that 100% excusing the pun here, kosher, Michael? I mean, if, if that's true, then why is anyone still eating meat? Well, I mean, in terms of lifespan, eating a burger appears to cut one's life as short as smoking two cigarettes. So if it wouldn't even occur to us to light up before and after lunch, maybe we should choose the bean burrito instead. A lot of media, Michael, recently, I'm sure you're all too familiar with this, with these obesity-reducing drugs. Ah, yeah. Um, how healthy or unhealthy are they? I, I saw a piece, actually, I think it was in The Times or, or, or on the BBC earlier today, which suggested a study that... Um, that people who give who, who take up these drugs and then give them up put on more weight is losing weight in itself healthy 
or is it how you lose your weight that can help you not age? In other words, if you eat badly and you take these drugs, are you just as likely to age? Um, the uh, Basically, obesity is so contracts one lifespan that taking drug that you'd have to have extraordinarily adverse side effects for the downsides of drugs or something like bariatric surgery to um, outweigh the risks of obesity. And indeed, um, the, the, um, the SOS study in Sweden showed that those uh, randomized to, uh, to bariatric surgery, which is a, not a uh, a, a, it's a risky surgery, particularly in the, the patient populations done under, despite the risks of surgery, live significantly longer than those who have the same weight who did not undergo um, uh, a bariatric surgery. So, you know, anything that gets people to eat less crap can be beneficial, whether you're artificially um, impairing you one's I mean, if you eat enough, you can still get fat from healthy foods. Well, I mean, not not really healthy foods. So that's this concept of caloric density. So some foods have are so low in calories, like vegetables, that you literally could not. So, um, uh, you know, uh, the the it would be like wheelbarrows full of you know salad to to you know to get you up to two thousand calories a day because uh, you know so, so many healthy foods have less than hundred calories per cup. And we really only have about four cups of stomach volume. Um, and so, uh, you know, for example, you know, two pints of strawberry ice cream um, uh, would fulfill one's caloric intake for the entire day. But to get the same amount of calories in strawberries themselves, I think it's something like 43 cups. Um, and so as much as you like, there's just no way you could, you could, you know, kind of stuff your stomach full to bursting 11 times a day. Um, to to even maintain your weight. So despite your best efforts, you'd be losing weight. Um, and so it's only, you know, the, the processed food industry has uh, created foods intentionally to have very high caloric density, which can be eaten quickly. Um, and so you have these remarks. So you, you can literally consume hundreds of calories per minute, um, you know, wiping out, you know, an hour's worth of exercise on the calories outside of the equation. So what we put in our mouth really is the key determinant to how heavy we end up. But I, I totally agree with you. Look, we don't need a thousand dollar drug to kind of decrap our diet. And in fact, the drug mechanism, which is a, a GLP-1 agonist activity can be replicated both by consumption of what are called thylakoids, which are the chlorophyll rich membranes and dark green leafy vegetables, as well as high fiber foods like uh, whole grains and legumes, which result in the production well, so-called postbiotics by our good bugs that uh, like butyrate that are absorbed through our colon wall into our bloodstream, circulate throughout our system, even past the blood-brain barrier and have this GLP-1 boosting effect. So we can have kind of a, a similar benefits without the risk of these drugs. And we really don't know what the risks of these drugs are because they're so new to the market. Michael, why, the more we talk, it seems to me, why didn't early homo sapiens live forever? They walked around all day, they ate, berries, um, and presumably vegetables. Why has our lifespan improved as we have aged as a species? So they had the opposite problem. Uh, the the uh, history of humanity is a history of famine, is a history of, of, of starvation. Um, even uh, just even in, in uh, early times, even the, even the last millennium. Well, yeah, because there's 
seasonal food. And if you don't find a way to store food, um, that's why we have these remarkable capacities to fast, um, to water only fast for, you know, a month at a time. Whereas the other organisms like rodents, for example, can be dead after just a few days um, without food because of their high metabolism. We, in fact, that's some of these uh, uh, these adaptive mechanisms to store fat is kind of being used against us now. The same biological hooks that the processed food industry, like the sugar, fat, uh, you know, salt, concentrated calories. These are the same. I mean, you know, so we, we evolved this desperate salt hunger because there's no KFCs or salt shakers on the African savanna. We developed this craving for high calorie foods like honey and bone marrow and whatever it took because that is good. Any, anyone who didn't have those genetic impulses would just not make it to reproductive age. But now those same biological impulses, natural impulses are being used against us uh, by the industry to get us to buy their garbage. And does that industry, which, as you suggested, is producing garbage, are they aware of how, and I, and I use this word carefully, how evil the products they're selling, they're killing us, that's the number one killer in America today? Well, I mean, I, that shouldn't be surprising since, you know, look, you know, like, you know, Philip Morris bought Kraft for a reason, right? I mean, they're, they're very similar industries. Um, and, you know, would you describe the, you know, the activity of the tobacco industry as evil? I would describe it as them just, you know, that's just our system. How can we make money? Well, you don't make money. You make money selling things that are addictive. How well is Starbucks doing? How well is, you know, the caffeine and Coca-Cola doing? How well is, you know, uh, the you know, tobacco industry worldwide they're doing? I mean, or do you want to sell broccoli for a living? I mean, there's just the incentives are not uh, don't necessarily have our best interests at heart. What about the socioeconomics of this, Michael? I know you've grappled with this in, in your writing. Uh, it, it, would it be fair to say that what you're suggesting is much more viable amongst upper middle class people, particularly white upper middle class people, that there is a a profound inequality which reflects our economic and cultural inequalities of the 2020s when it comes to food. It's actually the opposite. I mean, the, so the, I mean, the cheapest foods are often the healthiest foods. So something like a bulk bin of, you know, whole grains or legumes or oatmeal or, you know, fruits and vegetables, you know. You but know, don't you have to go to Whole Foods for that? I mean, some of these poorer neighborhoods don't even have stores. No, that's, uh, no, no, that's absolutely food. true, right? We have these food deserts. We have these food swamps, essentially. Um, but you can still uh, typically find, you know, frozen vegetables um, uh, and canned vegetables. There are ways to, uh, you know, preserve these foods without necessarily uh, needing a produce aisle. And of course, look, we spend billions of dollars subsidizing the food industry. Why are, we subs why is why are taxpayers paying to make sugar artificially cheap why are we paying to make feedstuffs artificially cheap so we can have dollar menu burgers you can argue whether or not we should be subsidizing the food industry at all but if we are going to spend all this largesse why not make fruits and vegetables cheaper and more widely accessible um and so there are this is a this is a societal issue and there are have been uh, um, uh, attempts made, some, some Scandinavian countries have these free fruit programs 
where every school children starts the day with a piece of fruit on their desk. And they found that the reduction in healthcare costs because of the added fruit consumption more than makes up for the cost of the fruit rather than let's spend money, let's give money to the sugar industry. And then on the other hand, have to pay more for healthcare. As I said, we don't want to give away all the secrets of the book, Michael, because we want people to buy it. But You've mentioned fruits and vegetables as being the core of how not to age in terms of how we eat. Are there particular fruits and vegetables? You mentioned berries, uh, greens, kale, apples. I mean, what advice would you give, particularly to parents who want to bring their kids up to, uh, to, to, to learn to eat responsibly? What should we be giving them? What should we be really prioritizing as parents and perhaps as citizens here when it comes to how to eat? So according to the Global Burden of Disease Study, not only is diet our number one killer, but the five worst things about our diet, the five things that would most net the largest lifespan gains would be number one in order of importance, eating more legumes. So the most important thing we do is like eat more beans, then eat more whole grains, then eat more nuts. So three out of the top five are things actually we're not getting enough of in our diet. And everyone loves nuts. I mean, I mean, are there certain nuts that are better than others? Should you eat? Salted nuts? There, are, We should eat unsalted, ideally unroasted nuts, and walnuts are the best because the highest uh, omega-3 content been shown to improve artery function acutely. Um, and then uh, a four and five on that list is eat less meat, drink less soda. But um, uh, so, so nuts are the healthiest snack, greens are the healthiest vegetable, berries are the healthiest fruit. Those are, in fact, that's why those three uh, foods are uh, featured on the cover. And presumably alcohol is another catastrophe. Unfortunately, alcohol is another catastrophe. I mean, we've long known that heavy drinking, drinking during pregnancy, binge drinking is bad for us. But there's been controversy historically about so-called moderate drinking. Those who tend to live the longest um, were not the abstainers who drank zero alcohol, but rather those who imbibed a few drinks a week. Unfortunately, we now know this appears to be an artifact of what's called the sick quitter effect, arising from the systemic misclassification of former drinkers as if they were lifelong abstainers. It's the same reason studies can find higher mortality rates among those who quit smoking rather than those who continue to smoke. It's not that the abstention led to poor health, but rather poor health led to abstention. So that's why you see, quote unquote, non-drinkers with higher levels, of higher levels of cirrhosis of the liver. How does that make sense? Oh, well, the reason they're non-drinkers because they have cirrhosis of the liver. Um, and so when you take that into account, um, this so-called J-curve disappears and we just have this linear increase in disease with uh, um, uh, with uh, no apparent benefit at lower levels of consumption. So, according to the Global Burden of Disease Study, the World Health Organization, the World Heart Federation, the safest level of drinking, sadly, is none. Grapes, barley, and potatoes best eaten in their non-distilled form, and Johnny Walker, no substitute for actual walking. Well, there you have it. If you want to... If you want to not to age if you want to if not live forever certainly live longer than uh, other people you need to eat more legumes more nuts more fruits more vegetables no fast food no meats no alcohol uh michael finally um i think you're doing a great public service with this what about uh, technology and ai um, we're, we're ending uh, all our interviews these days with a question to our guests about if there is a problem in the 21st century 
which could be sold with AI. What is it and how would it be done? Are there ways in which all this new technology, these smart machines, can help us with what we eat and what we don't eat? Well, they certainly have helped. So uh, Illicit um, was a nonprofit um, uh, kind of search uh, optimization uh, in the scientific realm. It has since turned into a for-profit, uh, but it was, it was actually very useful um, in, 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 in kind of sifting through the research personally. But I think uh, if there's one thing AI can help us with potentially is AI alignment, trying to align AI with our... Uh, with human values such that they don't end up killing us off.